Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Mm. I like our changing world. Now, mihi nui, and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance Teme. Later on in the show, we'll hear about the chemical element cadmium. But first up, enzymes. We're off to Waikato University to meet biologist Vic Arcus and PhD student Erica Prentice. They're interested in the role of temperature in the way enzymes work. Enzymes are protein molecules, large protein molecules, and their job is to catalyse chemical reactions, to speed them up. So a lot of chemical reactions which are critical for life occur very slowly by themselves. And so cells make enzymes to speed those reactions up. A really good example is the example of maltose, which is a sugar. If you put maltose in water, then it is incredibly stable. But maltose is two units of glucose, and the cell needs it to be glucose, not maltose. So the cell produces an enzyme to turn maltose into glucose. And the enzyme speeds the reaction up by over 100 billion times. So if we put maltose in water without an enzyme, it'll sit there happily for 11 million years. If we put an enzyme in with the maltose, it will turn into glucose in a few minutes. And of course, a cell can't wait around for 11 million years to get the glucose it needs. It needs the glucose immediately, and that's why cells produce enzymes to speed reactions up. You look at the evolution of enzymes? We do. We're interested in the evolution of enzymes and we're interested in the fundamentals of how the enzyme speeds the reaction up. And this is still a controversial area. We know how fast the reaction goes in the presence of an enzyme and we know many of the steps of how the uh, chemical reaction proceeds when the enzyme is present. But there's still a lot of debate about exactly how the enzyme is able to speed the reaction up by such a huge, huge degree. So what are some of the different thoughts on this? There's two camps. On the one hand, there's a group of researchers around the world which believe that the enzyme pre-organises the chemical reaction. So if you can imagine that to get the chemical reaction to go, you need a whole lot of different chemical groups in the right sort of architecture to make the reaction go. And so that's called pre-organisation. So if you can imagine the enzyme is a very large molecule and it's pre-organised some chemical groups to make the reaction go faster. Then on the other hand, there's a group of researchers which argue that the enzyme is a very large and flexible molecule and it's the flexibility or the dynamics of the molecule which make the reaction go faster. 
And these two groups like to argue with each other. And where do you fall? We're trying to tread a careful line along the middle ground because we use a theoretical framework called statistical thermodynamics, which was developed at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So it's very well known and well organised in physics and in chemistry. And we're trying to apply those principles to biology, essentially, or biochemistry. So we've developed a theory called macromolecular rate theory, macromolecular being large molecules, which are enzymes, and rate theory being the speed at which chemical reactions take place. So we've called our theory macromolecular rate theory, or MMRT for short. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the, the very sort of basic principles of statistical thermodynamics and apply them to these very large molecules which catalyse reactions for life. How do you do that? That's where Erica comes in because we do a lot of measurements. We, we do a lot of experiments in the lab and we have a, our favourite enzyme, which is this maltosidase, which breaks maltose up into glucose, and we study that enzyme in very great detail. In the lab, we can take a sample of this enzyme, we can add some substrate to it. And substrate then being? The thing that it works on, so the maltose, the sugar and we can measure the rate that it's producing the broken-down sugar. So we can really accurately measure how fast that enzyme's working. Then we also do things, we can change the system that it's in, we can change the enzyme slightly itself, and see how that affects the rate. So we're looking at things that change the rate, and then trying to explain why that is the case. So what kind of things do change the rate? So we can change the sequence of our enzyme slightly, and that changes the rate is the main thing we do, and it also changes the temperature dependence of our system, which is the main thing we're getting, trying to get to with our theory, is the temperature dependence of these systems. Temperature turns out to be an intuitively simple concept, but theoretically quite difficult concept in terms of how large systems respond to changes in temperature. So our enzyme is very large, and so when we change the temperature, it responds to temperature in quite an unusual way. So I would normally expect things to happen faster if it's warmer. That's exactly right. So normally chemical reactions simply go faster the warmer it is. And in fact they go faster exponentially. Um, so So as you increase temperature a small amount then the rate exponentially goes up. But when there's an enzyme involved the rate goes up exponentially for a small while, but then at a particular temperature, the rate starts going down again. And this is a function of the large enzyme which is involved. If it was just the chemistry, if it was just maltose turning to glucose without anything else, then it would just go up exponentially with temperature until all the water boiled away. But when an enzyme is involved, it goes up and then it goes down again as the temperature goes up. So the response to temperature is quite complicated. And we feel that we can explain this using statistical thermodynamics. And we are expending quite a lot of effort and energy trying to experimentally verify the sort of hypothesis, which is macromolecular rate theory. Yeah. Can we go and have a look at the lab and just see what you do in there? Sure. So what are we looking at? So this is called a stopped flow spectrophotometer. So basically the aim of this is this can directly measure how fast a reaction is going. So it's measuring the production of our glucose, our single sugar. 
This machine is specialised in that it's got very precise temperature control. So we can set the temperature and we can know it very accurately. And it also has a very precise um, sample handling, so it's always injecting the same amount of our liquid into the system, so it's very accurate at measuring the rates of the system, how fast our enzyme's going. So when you talk about fast, are you talking seconds, milliseconds, minutes? We look at enzyme reactions over 10 seconds, usually. Very quick. It can measure down to milliseconds. We can follow the reaction from, from just a few milliseconds out to 10 seconds. So we have very accurate measurements uh, from the very beginning of the reaction over a long period of time. And the temperature range you're working in? 10 to 50 degrees, so sort of the temperatures that biological systems are exposed to naturally. Vic was talking about the reaction changing, like speeding up as things got warmer and then slowing down. So Mm. what's the temperature range over which things speed up and then things slow down again? So MALL, the enzyme that Vic's been talking about that breaks down the sugars, that speeds up to around about the mid-40 degrees and then starts to slow down higher than that. So when we're doing that range from 20 to 50 degrees, we're capturing that whole increase in rates and then the curvature back down as well. Now at school, you learn that enzymes start to fall apart at high temperatures. That's why the reaction uh, slows down again. But because we have such accurate equipment to measure the reactions, we can show that the slowing down is not due to the enzyme falling apart. It's due to something else. Do you know what that something else is? Yes. Well, we have a theory, which essentially is a hypothesis about what that is, and then Erica and I work together to try to experimentally verify the theory. As you know in science, all you can do if you have a theory is to design more and more experiments to try to confirm the theory it may be that at some time in the future someone does an experiment to show that it doesn't work but we're in the phase where we're doing multiple experiments to show that it does work we also make our own enzymes so we have the ability to make the enzymes and purify them and this also allows us to change them in a systematic way and then we can purify the mutant enzymes, as they're so-called, and look at their rates as well and try to rationalise the difference between the native enzyme and the mutant enzyme as a means of testing our theory. Do some of these mutants not work? Most of them don't work. So we tested initially, this was prior to my time, but one of our initial postdocs on this project made 300 mutants to a single enzyme and we now work with a set of four of those mutants that have got changed temperature properties to look at the basis of our system, basically. So, back in your office, what's your hypothesis, and how are you going about testing it? When you have a really large molecule, like an enzyme, then it turns out that it has a high heat capacity, which means that it has the capacity to absorb energy. So when you add energy to a system, generally the temperature goes up. But if the system can absorb a lot of energy, then the temperature goes up more slowly. So a system with a high heat capacity has the ability to absorb more energy for each degree of temperature that it goes up. And what our hypothesis is, is that biological systems, which have their chemical reactions which are driven by enzymes then the fact that the enzymes have a high heat capacity 
means that the system behaves in a fundamentally different way than if the system was a pure chemical system with a lower heat capacity. So that's essentially the basis of our theory, which is that the difference between a straightforward chemical system and a biologically driven system is that biologically driven systems involve enzymes which are large molecules with high heat capacity. So are you getting the results you expected? Are you at the point of seeing results and being able to sit back and go, that fits our hypothesis exactly, or, or no, it's not working at all? So Vic makes a lot of predictions, and quite often he's correct, and sometimes he's not, and then we sort of change our theories a little bit. So we've got a lot of results along the way, and a lot of them confirm what we've been thinking. The original prediction has turned out to be correct, and so the temperature-dependent behaviour of biological systems is fundamentally different than chemical systems. So that's turned out to be correct. What's happened along the way is that as we delve deeper, for example, you can present the hypothesis that it's the heat capacity of the system, which means that it behaves differently. But then the very next question is, why does the system have a different heat capacity? And then that requires us to delve deeper into the system and what is the origin of this different heat capacity. And so we've been doing a lot of work in that area. And then we've been refining the theory to include additional things. Uh, So I think the theory has progressed a long way in the six years that we've been working on it. Is it exciting developing a new theory? Well, it's exciting for me, Uh, and as Erica says, I end up making lots of predictions. Some of them turn out to be right, some of them turn out not to be right, but that's the excitement of developing the theory. And one of the strengths of the theory is its predictive capacity. What do the rest of the scientific community think of it? We had a lot of difficulty publishing at the beginning, but I think that our theory is starting to get quite a bit of traction now, which which is good. So does this have implications... And I'm thinking in terms of a warming world, for instance. So climate change, things are getting warmer. If enzymes have this sort of a critical point where the way they work changes according to temperature, what are the implications of that? The project overall can be essentially divided into two. One of the projects is the fundamental nature of enzyme catalysis, which is what we're working on and in the context of our theory associated with heat capacity. But then what we've seen is that we've seen that biological systems also show the same temperature dependence. So if you take a biological system and you warm it up, then the the system goes faster. But then at a certain temperature, the rates start to go down again. And the other half of the theory that we've been developing, and we've been working with lots of different scientists from different disciplines, is to see if the behaviour of individual enzymes scales up to the behaviour of organisms and ecosystems. So, for example, at the moment, Erica's been doing a lot of work on photosynthesis because one of the key components of the global carbon cycle is determined by the rate of photosynthesis, drawing carbon dioxide down out of the atmosphere. Now, of course, photosynthesis is a pretty complex process, but at its heart is a group of enzymes which catalyse chemical reactions And so we're trying to look at the temperature dependence of photosynthesis in the context of a warming world. One of the main things we're sort of getting out of our work from photosynthesis is that there seems to be an upper temperature limit from which photosynthesis just starts going down. 
and it seems like this is a hard limit so systems can't evolve in order to increase this particularly of course that's potentially wrong but that seems to be what we're coming out from our data so that's quite a sort of scary thought in terms of if we do start going past that high temperature our ecosystems can't keep bringing CO2 out of the atmosphere at the rates that they currently can so temperature change is obviously linked to CO2 in our atmosphere as well and in in natural systems there's a balance of CO2 so photosynthesis takes CO2 out of the atmosphere and respiration puts CO2 back into the atmosphere so the balance of these two rates is really important for the overall atmospheric concentration of CO2 What's quite scary is that photosynthesis goes up and then comes back down over the sort of temperature range that respiration keeps going up. So if ecosystems are getting to a temperature where they're over the maximum rate of photosynthesis, respiration is putting lots of CO2 into the atmosphere and photosynthesis is taking less and less CO2 out of the atmosphere. So this system starts accumulating more CO2 in the atmosphere. So it becomes a bit runaway. Yep. Yeah, so it'll just become self-perpetuating if you sort of start to get to that point. We present the system as a binary balance between respiration and photosynthesis, but there are an enormous number of other processes going on. For example, people believe in something called CO2 fertilisation, which means if there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, then photosynthesis should be fertilised by that. And so one of the other things we're working on is the relationship between CO2 fertilisation and temperature. So if the temperature goes up, then more CO2 will go into the atmosphere, but that should fertilise photosynthesis and bring more CO2 out of the atmosphere. So we're interested in the balance of these rather complex processes based on our theory associated with the temperature dependence of enzyme rates. Um, One of the ways we describe it is that we're looking at the temperature dependence of rates from enzymes up to ecosystems. Thanks, Vic. That was biologist Vic Arkus from Waikato University, who has a James Cook Fellowship from the Royal Society Te Aparangi. We also heard from PhD student Erica Prentice. Kate Fakaronga mai koe kito tato al horihori, he hotaka e panakia papatuanuku tangaroa meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance. And this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now it's time for another episode from RNZ's chemistry podcast, Elemental. It's the International Year of the Periodic Table, and Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and I are exploring the chemical elements alphabetically, and we are up to the C's. We're up to cadmium yet another metal. How many of the chemical elements are actually metals, Alan? Well, I'm going to disappoint you on this because I'm not going to give you a number. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Okay, well, there are 118 elements on the periodic table. We know that much. Now, we know, I would say, roughly between sort of 70 and 80 of those are metals, what we would call metals at room temperature and pressure. The reason I'm not giving you an exact number is because if you think back to our episode on the transuranium elements. Oh, those big heavy things. Indeed, those big heavy things. And the fact that some of them have only been made in quantities of a few atoms. And when you have only a few atoms of something, that's not sufficient to 
actually see if it's a solid or a liquid or a gas. We can certainly guess, predict, whatever, but we're not going to ever get a big enough sample to actually say whether it's truly a metal or whatever. So I'm just going to sort of, yeah, wave my hands over that one. Okie dokie then. Cadmium, (laughs) tell me all about it. Cadmium. So it is element number 48 on the periodic table, atomic number 48. It was discovered or isolated in 1817, elemental symbol CD, and in the periodic table it is sort of in the middle-ish and around about halfway down. It's just below zinc in group 12, and group 12 only contains four elements, unlike the usual groups which are much longer. So it's sort of in the U-bit in the middle of the periodic table. Oh yes, that dip in the middle. That's yep. the one. And it gets its name from the Latin word cadmia, and that is in fact the old name for calamine, which is otherwise known as zinc carbonate. Now, I remember calamine lotion from when I was a kid. It was pink, and my mother used to use it on us kids when we got sunburnt to cool it down or itchy bites to stop the itch. Is this anything to do with cadmium? Yeah, uh, well, yes and no. In fact, cadmium was found to be an impurity in zinc salts. And so that's essentially where it gets its name from. But there is, in fact, no cadmium in calamine lotion. And just as an aside, calamine lotion is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines for being one of the most effective and safe medicines needed in a health system. Oh my God, it's still around. (laughs) It is indeed. No cadmium in it, of course, but it's mostly zinc oxide and it gets that pink colour from a smidge of iron oxide in there. So calamine lotion is obviously okay because we plaster it all over small kids. Would you actually do that if it had had cadmium in it? No. Cadmium is one of those (laughs) all too familiar now nasty elements. It is a bit toxic And the reason that it's toxic is precisely because of its position on the periodic table. It lies directly below zinc. Now, zinc is an essential element for humans. Cadmium, lying where it does, to the body looks very, very much like zinc. And so the body can easily mistake it for zinc. And then it goes into places in the body where it shouldn't go. And it can act as a toxin because of that. Hmm, Sounds unpleasant. Where else would I come across it? If you're into art at all, then you may have heard of a variety of cadmium pigments, for example. Cadmium yellow. Yes, indeed. Cadmium yellow is one. You can also get cadmium red, you can get cadmium orange and cadmium green. So Ah. they're all used as artistic pigments. Unfortunate that they're a little bit toxic, but then again, you don't go sort of eating paint, hopefully. No licking the paintbrush. (laughs) No, no, indeed not. The good thing about cadmium pigments, some of them anyway, that you can heat them up to very, very high temperatures. So they survive around about 3,000 degrees Celsius, which means that you can use them to colour glass. So you can get beautiful, bright, vibrant uh, coloured glass, which does contain cadmium. There's a glass colour called Imperial Red, and that was uh, used to create the glasses for red traffic lights. Do we still use it in glasses at all? Well, yes, we do, and we shouldn't. So in 2010, McDonald's of burger fame had to recall 12 million glasses that they had been using to advertise the Shrek Forever After movie because they were painted with pigments that contain cadmium. Uh, not, Not the best idea. Oops. (laughs) Hey, now cadmium is ringing some bells. Didn't it used to be used in rechargeable batteries? Yes, indeed. If you've heard of nickel cadmium batteries, yes, for that's example, what I'm thinking of. they 
are still used, but they're sort of on the way out again because of the toxicity of cadmium. And so they are being gradually replaced by other kinds of batteries. So in particular, your lithium-ion batteries, for example, or your nickel-metal hydride, or NIMH batteries. Yeah, nickel-cadmium batteries are really good in terms of being rechargeable, but it's the toxicity problem. And not only in batteries, but for some strange reason, people are busy making jewellery out of pure cadmium now. If you look online you will find all sorts of things that are made out of pure cadmium. I'm not sure that's a brilliant idea. You certainly wouldn't want to suck on your bracelets or something like that. You'll be ingesting some cadmium from that. Because it's toxic, it's being phased out, apart from in this jewellery, and the chemist's advice is don't wear it. So (laughs) does this mean we'll be seeing less of it in future? Has it had its day? Yes and no. What it has been found to be very, very good at recently is in materials called quantum dots, Now, quantum dots are very, very, very tiny particles of generally cadmium sulfide or cadmium selenide. And the beauty of these things is that if you irradiate them with light, they can then fluoresce, but the colour that they give you from that depends on the size of the particles. So in other words, you can get the same material giving you different colours, which is very, very, very unusual. And it all depends on the size of the particles. We're talking, you know, nanometer-sized particles here, between sort of 10 and 100 nanometers. And if you've ever heard of QLED TVs, these are the latest things, quantum dot LED TVs. So they contain quantum dots, and they apparently are the future of high-definition TVs. And did you know that you are one of the lucky people on the planet who can spell their first and last names with element symbols from the periodic table? I can't do it, and that guts me. I can do my first name. I can do A-L-L-A-N. I can't get the Blackman in there, but Allison Balance works perfectly. Aluminium, iodine, sulfur, oxygen, nitrogen, boron, aluminium, lanthanum, nitrogen, cerium. There you go. Brilliant. Thank you. (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) Neither did I until a couple of days ago. (laughs) Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology from the podcast Elemental. And you can catch more chemistry with Brian Crump on Friday nights with his Element of the Week. And that's all we've time for tonight. But you can catch up with tonight's stories again or dip into the wonderful varied world of our audio archive anytime at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll also find all the episodes of the Elemental and Kākāpō Files podcasts there too, and why not sign up for our weekly email newsletter? Stay in touch. We love hearing from you. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science, and our email address is ourchangingworld, or one word, at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. Until next week, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.